The following is not intended for younger audiences. The opinions expressed do not reflect the views of the podcaster's employers. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Bienvenidos! Bienvenidos todos a Two Dudes, One Double Feature, el programa en el que dos tipos hablan, dos tizos películas, y eso es todo. Soy el tipo uno, Richard. And I'm dude two, Joe. That was Google Translate, so if I fucked up, I apologize. <laughs> this is what happens when your operation but, is just four people. <laughs> but I wanted to do something special. Um... But you know, the the this it, it translates it should translate to welcome welcome everyone, two dudes, one double feature show in which two dudes talk you know the whole spiel if you've listened to the show. It's the whole thing. I'm dude one Richard. Anyway, um Bienvenidos everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bienvenidos is objectively a great way to say welcome. It just it just is. It really is. Just just bienvenidos. Hold on, I turned my vibration off. Um, but yeah, I know I I, th- I have a feeling I definitely messed up one part because I was reading it and I felt confident, and so I went fast. So and when you feel confident, even though like you haven't practiced at all, you know you're gonna fuck up. So <laughs> like because it's it's I be- it's el programa en el que dos tipos hablan de de dos películas. But I think I said something else. But if so, yeah. I just wanted to let everyone know that was Google Translate. So if I did mess up, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. Anyway, welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, two dudes, one double feature. So I'm gonna take a drink of water here. This is the start of our holiday season episode. So. If you've never listened to our show, essentially from November to December, um, we're kind of in a bi-weekly stage, but right now we're actually going to extend the bi-weekly stage until pretty much June of 2023, so just be prepared for that. Um, But during this time of the year, we like to do uh, special episodes, holiday-specific episodes. This year, we're, we're a little bit... We're doing something a little bit different. Like, a lot of these double features aren't necessarily holiday related but they make us feel like they make us think of the holidays in one way or another plus they're just fun we got a lot of really exciting ones honestly i'm actually really excited about all these episodes and today we have a really exciting triple feature uh uh focused on one of our all-time favorite like probably the one of the if not the highest ranking member of the two dudes hall of fame if we're being honest yeah yeah but yeah yeah, he's up there, and it's sad that we haven't... This is also sort of like making up for the fact we've only talked about two of his movies on our, on our show. Granted, he hasn't made a lot, but still. Like, we're getting... We're, this this is this will help. <laughs> this will balance out the scales. Um, but before we get into any of that, um, I am going to ask uh, Dude1, 
myself, not Dude 2, actually. <laughs> I'm going to ask Dude 2 um, a very important question because we've we've kind of been through some stuff. So, Dude uh, dude 2, how are you doing? Better than I was last week. Um, but just... That's very good. Just, yeah. Um, you know... I don't know how I'm not going to get into too much detail about this just because it was, Oh no, 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 no. It was a harrowing experience. Um, you know, um, my mom went to, went to the hospital and, um, you know, that was a, that, that, that was an experience. <coughs> um, she's much better now. She's out of the hospital. She was in there almost a week. Um, you know, so yeah, I, you know, so obviously it's one of those, one of those things where I'm, at the ho- either at work or at the hospital or back at home for like sleep basically. So, um, I, it, it was definitely, I definitely felt like that week, that week of time. I was, it was definitely like, like it was like sucked out of me, you know, on, on some level <laughs> where I'm just like, you know, right. I'm going through whatever. And then I'm just like, Oh wow. A lot of, t- uh, all this time has passed and I haven't done I haven't done my, like we were supposed to record this much soon. This episode much sooner. Um, we like we had a whole plan, and you know, but this is a whole it was a whole thing. But obviously not her. Real life got in the way. Yeah, not her. Obviously not her fault. It's just like, wow. But um, I'm a lot better a- a- after that. Uh, trying to think. Um, yeah, I mean, just it's it's weird. It's weird when like something so like unfortunate happens and then like everything else just feels like like a shadow of like what like oh i did this Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um but uh you know i'm I'm really glad that we're we're recording uh get back to some type of normal routine um you know the what the timing of it (laughs) worked out admittedly not that that's (laughs) not not that's important but like it's nice that it worked out uh that way but um what what ha- what have i been i mean i'm watching the movies for this um this show admittedly you know um mm-hmm. i was i finished season six of seinfeld um because I, I i got that message from you i was like yes you know because there was a time where i was like binging through it at a pretty fast rate and then it like slowed down dramatically and uh, I watched a bunch of episodes with my mom yesterday, so cleared, you know, because we watched an episode of Poro, and we love watching Poro, but it was a depressing, a really depressing one, and uh, <laughs> it was, you know, we, we needed some uh, some laughs, if you will. Some levity. Yeah, we needed some levity, um, and I, I need to get back to watching Twin Peaks, you know, because um, I've been re-watching the original series of Mike, but simultaneously I was watching The Return. Because, you know, I was watching, I was already watching Twin Peaks on my own anyway. So, I don't know. Right. At, th- at this point, it might just be a case of where I just wait until Mike's done with the original series and I just re-watch what I watched over the return. Um, but, we'll see what happens with that. But, and then, and then not that long ago, you and I, like, figured out the whole schedule for, like, basically the next year. Yeah. It was nice. It was a very nice feeling. It's, like, because... Every so often when we're planning this show out, like, we'll, we'll, we'll take a moment to be like, okay, what do we want to talk about? And there's, so, there's, like, there's a nice level of gratification um, that comes with that. 
because it's just like you feel like you've accomplished it. granted you know it's obviously there's so much that we still have to do so like we have to watch those movies when that time comes um we might have a few episodes with some friends uh again it's been a while since we've done that but uh we'll have some episodes with some friends uh pretty soon and so we got to coordinate that as well but once we have like a set plan like okay this is when we want this this is when we want this like that there's something nice about that yeah like you feel like you've done something <laughs> with your life <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's important to us and uh it was nice because you know we've been coming up on episodes where like oh man there's some blank spots here there's some double features that we're, we're not so sure that we're gonna we're ever gonna cover there's some things we got to rearrange <laughs> you know um and obviously that stuff can just change anyway because you know richard and i might watch something new and we're like dude we need to watch this. We need to cover this. Uh, cover this thing. <laughs> this um, needs to be on the show now. But um, I actually, uh, speaking of episode like scheduling, because um, you might, folks, you might have noticed the fact that we put out a single episode because we put out Nosferatu, and uh, Waiki, one time, uh, actually g- guest of our program, uh, dear friend of ours, uh, said he liked the idea of the single feature concept. You know, that's cool. You know, something we'll we'll bring about here here and there for things. Um, nice, yeah. Uh, but how how are you doing? Well, um, similar to you, uh, family went through some stuff. I won't talk about what, but some stuff. Let's just say, right? Um, uh, it's not health related. Well, it is kind of health related, but it's not like no, we didn't go to the hospital or anything. But yeah. Um, there was a situation that I thought was over years ago, but turns out it wasn't over. And in fact, it'd been continuing on for a little over a year. And so that was an incredibly scary situation. Um, just to, the possibility of kind of dialing back, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, possibility of, <clears throat> reliving old moments that I don't think anyone wanted to relive. Um, and it was, it's, it was such a weird thing because like so much time had passed and you thought, Oh, this isn't going to happen again. You know, we should, we're out of the woods now. It's fine. But nope. And we had, um, we had a, uh, the family had a large talk about it, and it went over very well, a lot better than I expected it, thankfully. Um, at the same time, though, there's still that, like, like my family is very much the kind of family that thinks, oh, once once something is said or talked about, then why worry about it again? But it's like, that's not how life works. <laughs> like, you tell me something's been going on, and yes, we have a talk about it, and yes, I am very glad that it went the way it did and i'm very glad that now my family knows how i feel about it and how my my the other members of the family feel about it and that it's something that is very destructive um and so hopefully that means it doesn't happen again however now i have a great level of distrust and that's not something that's just going to immediately go away. I mean, I already sort of felt that just from pandemic-related stuff because that constant feeling of, like, did you wear a mask when you go out? 
are you you know have you take precautions are you when you go to the restaurants are you eating outside are you staying away from people and like i remember like one point my mother telling me that uh she went to a house party and was taking pictures of people inside their house this was like 2020 Mm -hmm. and i'm like ma what are you doing (laughs) and so there was already like admittedly that level of distrust but then like this whole other thing happens and now it sort of changes things up more and it's hard let's just say um but as long as i I mean as long as we can have these talks and let it be known how someone feels but at the end of the day that doesn't mean everybody's gonna completely like stop doing whatever it is they're they should they shouldn't be doing you know what i mean right yeah so it's 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 tough um i mean obviously i love my family and um i never want anything bad to happen to them and if and i just hope that they think about the fact that their actions affect everybody and not just themselves Mm -hmm. and that's probably as far as i'll take (laughs) that conversation in a recording situation um but it's 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 definitely a thing and you know again i'm incredibly grateful that the conversation played out the way that it did and um it is known now that this is something we don't want to happen any anymore mm-hmm. um so yeah um but other than that um a lot of time has passed so <laughs> so i feel like a lot of a lot of shit happened in my life that i just can't think of Really, yeah. other than like I watched some movies, like I caught up on some movies that I uh, missed in theaters or uh, didn't get the chance to watch um, when it was playing. Like a lot of fun ones, um, some interesting ones. I, like I watched Crimes of the Future, the new David Cronenberg movie. Mm. That was really interesting. <laughs> Um, as far, like, I don't know, like, that's, speaking of not being able to talk about certain things, that's a movie I don't think I can ever actually say anything that happens in that movie on the show without you going, maybe we should not have that on here. (laughs) I, I, yeah, I've heard some, I've heard some things, and, um, yeah, I don't know, I would like to get some Cronenberg on our, on our program, on our show at some point. But it's, it's also like a matter of, okay... Should we mention this moment? Right. <laughs> um, like, I'll say this much. Without going too much into detail, and you can nix this if you want. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm weirdly like, I gotta stick my toe in the water. Proceed, proceed. <laughs> so, Rip the band-aid. So basically the, so basically the gist of this movie is that um, it's set in an undisclosed time in the future, and human evolution has accelerated for some people, and humans don't really feel pain anymore. Mm-hmm. So, like, people can have surgery, for example, and be completely conscious and fine. Um, however, uh, some people get kind of a kick out of it. <laughs> and so, like, there's a whole aspect of the movie where Viggo Mortensen's character, Saul, is he can, he can grow new organs through, like, the human evolutionary process um but the the thing is the the world has sort of 
made evolutionary like growth a bad thing and they they make it seem like people aren't human because they evolve more or something mm-hmm. especially because like there's a whole group of people who evolve and grow new organs that allow them to digest like plastics and like things that can't be recycled properly or things that don't get recycled properly um like it's basically like they talk about like how human evolution has now caught up with uh, technological evolution or something like that. Okay. It's, it's a whole thing. They, there's a lot of exposition in the movie, admittedly, but it doesn't really, like, make it worse because you feel like it's kind of needed. <laughs> it's like Inception. Like, Inception's got some cool shit, but they have to explain all that cool shit. Right. Okay. All right. All right. So it'd be like Inception, but surgery is the new sex, basically. That's, uh... Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is a line, actually, that uh, Kristen Stewart says. <laughs> Because after, because like, because like Vigo Mortensen is a performance artist, and he like gets his his new organs removed for like a show with Leah Sadu, who's doing the operation, and then like Kristen Stewart gets turned on <laughs> by it, mm-hmm. and she goes up to him after the show, and she's like, "I went, I was watching your show, and it it really turned me on. <laughs> like I wanted you to to operate on me." <laughs> 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 like anytime that stuff's brought up admittedly like i know it's meant to be played here but like it kind of makes me laugh like oh my god that they're actually going with this um but there's a whole bit where like he gets a zipper installed in his stomach mm. and leah Sadu's like a little bit disappointed and he's like he's like no this is this is for something different there's i don't get any sort of pleasure out of this this is just mechanical and she's like i don't know zippers have their own thing too <laughs> She unzips his his stomach, <laughs> and then you could probably guess what she does after yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll leave that to the imagination. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's something that happens. It's it's interesting. <laughs> Just say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god oh sorry i kicked my dresser um but yeah <laughs> it's something that happens it's probably like i guess the quote-unquote kinkiest thing that happens in the movie and like the, the the funniest line i think vigo mortensen has in the whole movie is um because kristen stewart is clearly like turned on by him and like she's incredibly attracted to vigo and she's and they start making out at one point, and then he has to stop it because he's like, "I'm just not very good at the old sex." <laughs> he's like, "You know what? He's he was honest about it." <laughs> yeah, good on you, Vigo. Good on you. <laughs> but yeah, so I did, I watched that recently and. That was probably the most interesting, I guess, movie. That, well, no, no. Um, you know, I watched a few other movies that I liked, but that one, I mean, I guess that one's like the one that'll stick with you a little bit. It's, it's, it seems like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's on Hulu if anyone wants to watch it. I'm not a sponsor for the movie, but I, I, I'd be curious if other people watched <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just to see what their takeaway is. Right. Uh, just from seeing Vigo and Leah Sadu and Kristen Stewart. But anyway, 
away from the crimes of the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joey's like, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> we're not in that zone anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the pleasure on his face when I'm looking at it. It's like, thank goodness. <laughs> that's that, that, oh, that's fun. Um, no, we have a very exciting triple feature for you guys this week. Um, Guillermo del Toro. Oscar-winning filmmaker, uh, has worked in the industry for quite some time. He's made so many incredible films, but um, he is probably the highest honor I he that is bestowed on him, without a doubt, is the fact that he is probably the highest-ranking member of the Two Dudes Hall of Fame. See, here's the thing with Del Toro. I was thinking about this last night. Like, there are things that you and I both have a mutual enjoyment of. But, like, one one of us will enjoy it more than the other, right? So, like, you know, Godzilla or, like, King Kong, stuff like that. Like, we like that stuff, but I'm more inclined to jump on that than you are. Or, like, Batman and, you know, some of that stuff. Like, some of the horror stuff that we checked out, it, we both enjoy, but you, it's more of your thing. Guillermo del Toro yes. is the, like, we, we said this about Pacific Rim especially, it is in the dead center of the Venn diagram that is the Two Dudes One Double Feature podcast. Uh, if you want to know what our interests smashed up into one like aesthetic or filmmaker looks like, it's probably Guillermo del Toro. Without a doubt, like everything he's done to one extent or another has just like fit, <laughs> just fit that mold. Um, like movies like obviously uh, Pacific Rim, which we talked about in the show, Shape of Water, we talked about in the show. Um, Crimson Peak is one that I I, I want to talk on the show, but we just haven't gotten the chance yet. Um, Nightmare Alley is one. I feel like we should just do Nightmare Peak. Honestly, I know we have like another plan, but like it just Crimson Alley, Crimson at like like. That just makes sense, especially because I feel like that is probably the one Guillermo del Toro pairing that would le- that be- feels like it leans one way and then it leans another way, but it's still like combined. We both enjoy it. It's like one is more one sensibilities and the other is uh, the other dude's sensibilities, but also like both Bradley Cooper and ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I, I should. I, I'm a huge fan. I love Crimson Peak. Man, that that is such an like it's one of those movies where I enjoyed it in theaters, but it's a movie where my admiration for it has grown with each passing year. Um, just so good, and also so I feel good. like with Crimson Peak and Nightmare Alley, they're both movies that I, I think they both flopped at the box office. Yeah, they're yeah. I feel like they're underrated uh, in weird in a weird way, even though Nightmare Alley got a Best Picture nomination. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I remember people were like, oh, boo. No, this is Okay, again, this is not going to turn to a Nightmare Alley episode. I'm sorry. This is just me airing my grievances. <laughs> boo. You air those grievances. Boo. People are like, boo, Nightmare Alley. I'm like, boo you, man. <laughs> you, you jerk. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> to, quote, to quote Bradley Cooper, uh, or paraphrase Bradley Cooper from Nightmare Alley, Madame, monsieur, what's the meaning of this? <laughs> but Chronos I thought you were going to say never cop a court <laughs> <laughs> anyway um, so this is this episode is the the trilogy 
of Guillermo del Toro and like Criterion put the put out like these movies over the course of a couple of years um and then they put them into a box set um it was like basically translated as the tril- trilogy of Guillermo del Toro um you know and there's a lot there's a bunch of things that these movies share uh, particularly the last two movies we're definitely going to get into a lot of the similarities um and shared themes of of those last two but you know, for completionist's sake, and that way you guys get our thoughts on a bunch um, on more movies, uh, we're going to talk about all three, and uh, that's going to start off with 1993's Kronos. I'm rubbing my Criterion copy on my microphone. Mine is back on my shelf, so I cannot do that right now. <laughs> that's okay, that's what I'm here for. Yes. Um, <laughs> Kronos. Now, but yes, um, Kronos. Can I, can I ask you, what was the first... Like, what was your first like Delta? Was it was Blade Two your first Del Toro movie, or would it be like that? The hell, yeah. Movie? Okay, I I feel like it was Blade Two because I remember my cousin was living with us for. I might have told the story when I think probably around the time we talked about War of the Worlds because I think we talked briefly about the Steven Spielberg remake. Because I know we watched that was one of the movies we went and saw in theaters together was uh, War of the Worlds, but. I remember it was like one of the first R-rated movies I saw without my parents. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, this is fucking cool. Right. Like, the vampires are so different. And, like, because that was, like, probably, like, the, the biggest, the most striking thing about Blade 2 is just that how unique the vampire designs were and how different they were. Because, obviously, when you think of vampires, fangs, unless you're talking about Twilight, uh, they can't go out in the sun without burning, unless you're talking about Twilight, where they glitter. <laughs> I'm trying to show some respect here, okay. Um, this is this is mostly for Caitlin if she listens to this. <laughs> we are Twilight. Um, We're at least the f- fans of the first movie. We love the first Twilight movie. It's great. <laughs> we should just have like a two dudes letterbox account, and our letterbox four is like Pacific Rim. You know, <laughs> Twilight's got to be one of those movies. Twilight's just in there, man. <laughs> for sure oh my god but um but yeah like you know the t- there's, there's that typical like vampire thing um and then with blade 2 Guillermo del Toro having such a unique interpretation of vampires incorporates something a little bit different that I feel like he expands on later in his career which I think he does quite a bit in a lot of his work like he'll have an idea in one movie and then he'll sort of which we'll talk about that a little bit with another one of our movies, but, like, he expands on it and other things. So, like, he had the vampire design in Blade Two, and then that sort of evolved into the strain vampires that he did for his book that got turned into the TV show. Um, but, uh, like, what was cool about them is, like, their, their jaws opened up, and there was, like, little fangs on them, and then they had these tongues that had, like, little barbs on them, and, mm-hmm. like, it was such a unique thing, and there was, like, insect things incorporated which Guillermo Toro is a huge fan of bugs if you if you've never been able to tell um but the, uh, there's some evidence in these movies but just thinking like how cool were these vampires and little did I know is that Guillermo Toro's had unique vampire interpretations from the very beginning yeah because like with that with Kronos because the whole story is um, around this thing called the Kronos device, which is like this golden egg thing with a jewel on it. And it, it's sort of, 
it sort of works like a scorpion in a way. Like it's got legs and it's got a little stinger tail thing. And um, <clears throat> inside of it is like all these gears and mechanisms and a living like parasitic insect thing. That And so like our main character uh, played by um, the main attraction for this entire trilogy, uh, Federico Lupi. Um, Lupi is on the, the two dudes Hall of Fame as well. Yes, um, without without doubt, um, he uh, finds this device and it latches onto his hand, and it initially starts drawing blood and it, like freaks him out. But then like he starts accepting the device and allowing it to do what it does. And basically, what it does is it turns people into like sort of unique interpretations of vampires. Mm-hmm. Um. And sort of how it sort of how it looks is that these characters. I know I'm expanding on it because you just asked me if I watch Blade Two in theaters. No, no, <laughs> no keep going. It's fine, it's fine. I, just, I just like I just randomly thought of this. I think I blame ADHD. Mm. Um, so like he starts accepting the Chronos device, and like the tail part like sinks into his arm or whatever, wherever he puts it, or, like into his chest, and he just sort of lets it do its thing, and then. He starts getting youthful and more, more strong and more vigorous. And um, at the same time, though, he's 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 got a little bit of a craving, craving for blood. Mm-hmm. And he like the, probably one of the most like gross scenes <laughs> in the movie is like he's in the bathroom, and this dude's got this wicked nosebleed, and it's getting everywhere, and and it's. The guy didn't clean up very well because there's obviously still some blood on the side of the sink, and and Loopy's just hovering over it like, mm. Mm. <laughs> I think it's like the defining image of the movie. Uh, if if you ask me, is is him licking the blood off the yeah. floor? You know, it, <laughs> that was so gross. It, it's it's such a. I mean, it's. It, it really you twist your stomach a bit and you're just like Ooh. like you know who's been on that bathroom floor it actually makes me think of um my one of my professors in college um he had a like a film a vampire film called three pints lighter hi matt how you doing um and, hi matt i don't know you but you um, seem nice he was a cool dude and um it was a vampire movie and there was like a similar scene <laughs> that happens and I'm like oh it's like Kronos he's like I've never seen Kronos <laughs> what I hope I hope you've seen him by now but anyway um watch Kronos I think he had a, a new movie recently come out um that's cool I forget that if I if I remember the name I'll drop it in the episode but yeah uh that because I remember this was an I feel like this was an early not early criterion pickup but you know I picked it up maybe close to 10 years ago you know, because obviously, like, like I had watched the Hellboy movie. I had watched the Hellboy movies um, at that point. Mm-hmm. Thought they were fine. They were entertaining. And, like, Pacific Rim was really, like, my, like, my true gateway. Because that was the first one I saw of his I saw in theaters. And I'm like... Really? Yes. Um, I mean, oh, wow. I mean, because, I, I mean, at that point, like... I mean, I'm thinking about, like, 2004. Like, when the first Hellboy came out, my mom was not letting me see Hellboy. At like right, t- 10, yeah. 11 years old, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, listen, I was at that point, I think I was still going to church every week. So, 
<laughs> yeah, when the movie's called Hellboy and you're going to church, I don't think your parents are going to be like, oh, let's go watch this. Um, but, like, what I'm like, and I remember seeing him on so many, like, other interviews and things, and he was always like, like Martin Scorsese, like, I enjoy their movies, but, like, even more so, I enjoy them talking about movies because they clearly have such a love um, love for the art form and so many things. Um, so, obviously, I started collecting some of his work, and that's how I got into seeing rewatching the Hellboy movies, especially loving the second one. The Golden Army is one of my favorite sequels ever. Uh, and, I of course, Pan's Labyrinth, which we'll talk about later. And uh, Kronos was one that I picked. I remember picking up, and um, I really, really dug Kronos. Um, I think it's one of those where it, it, you know, when you look at, like, first films of, like, filmmakers that debut features, you look for, like, the parallels with the rest of their with the rest of their career. Yeah. You know, and we'll especially see that with, um, with this trilogy, but like, you know, showing off monsters in a way where they're not as like scary, you know, they're actually just, you know, they're just other creatures, you know, and actually people are pe pe cruel. People are scarier than any sort of like fairy tale monster. You know, um, I think about, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a continuing theme and like everything, Guillermo del Toro does like <clears throat> like I think you know like going to like uh like the comparison with like say like Tim Burton movies um because I, I know I've talked about this before but mm -hmm. like the idea like that Tim would always address um like the outsider aspect of like you know oh this person's different than everybody else and sometimes he succeeds sometimes he doesn't right um, with Guillermo, like, he goes so far as to say that it's not, like, we shouldn't be scared of monsters. Like, because monsters, I mean, they have their own nature, they have their own life, they have their own existence, and a lot of them aren't out to harm you. It's like bugs. Mm -hmm. You know, it's probably why he loves bugs so much, because bugs are not, don't have some evil vendetta against humans, they can they can harm us quite effectively, even kill us. But like the only time it ever happens is if we're disturbing them, right? If we're bothering them, mm -hmm. and how often that happens is insane. Like you know, I think a, a, the best way to describe a Guillermo del Toro movie is someone going in the woods and turning over a log, and there's a black widow there, and instead of leaving the black widow alone or walking away, the dude's like, "I'm going to kill this black widow." And then what happens? Black Widow bites him and he dies. Mm -hmm. I think that's a perfect analogy to explain um, a Guillermo del Toro movie. Um, it's like, like I think he's got such a love for for the other, for nature, for for other things that aren't humans, because humans are capable of great evil, mm -hmm. and some do great evil as we see every day of our lives. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Kronos, like. You know, we have uh, Loopy's character who becomes a vampire, so now he's now he's not human anymore. And he all he wants to do is he wants to live, he wants to be with his granddaughter, um, run his antique shop, and, and, and just live out the rest of his golden years. Right. And then yet there's this, there's this other guy who's also older who's doing everything he can to, to, to continue living. And by stealing this this device that could give him that possibility, um, and he uses uh, a young Ron Perlman to do it, 
which is such a weird thing to see, admittedly, because I'm not used to, to a young Ron Perlman. Obviously, everybody starts off young at some point, but it's just so wild to be like, oh my god, look at Ron Perlman. <laughs> and he's so good in the movie, too. Oh, he's fantastic. And it's just, it's just so funny, too, to see him play, like, such a dickhead. Like, because, like, I feel like every other movie that he's in with Guillermo del Toro, he's... Except for maybe, like, Hannibal Chow, but even Hannibal Chow's not, like, terrible outright. No. He's just very interesting. Yeah, Hannibal's not a, <laughs> Hannibal's not a villain, you know. Like No, no. <laughs> you know, but um, <laughs> I, I think one of the other things, too, I like with del Toro, um, with a number of his movies, is that his villains... Like when his villains are at their best, they're vil- they're despicable. Like you hate them, you hate their guts, and especially true of the next two movies. But he gives them like a very humanizing thing where you still hate them, but you you are able to see that understand you understand, and they they feel like more real people. And Ron Perlman feels yes. like Ron Perlman in this movie. Feel, I feel so bad for him because like, he has to take care of of Claudio Brook. Who, um, in this movie, who's very good, by the way, he's um, fantastic yes. as, as this guy who wants, he, he's like trying to live and trying to find this device. Um, and like, Ron Perlman is just trying to like, he wants to improve what he looks like. And, you know, he has to take care of, he has to take <laughs> care of this dude. Um, and he, he, he goes through it, man. He, go, he goes through it. I mean, he's still evil, but he goes through it. Yes. Um, I mean, visually speaking, obviously this isn't like um, Guillermo del Toro eventually would make like $150 million like movies eventually, you know, <laughs> but like yeah. visually, visually really striking stuff. Like I think about when you go to like Claudio Brooks, like lair place, right. And it's like this mm-hmm. very cold looking place, but there's these angel statues like hanging, you know, like these decrepit, um, cause all the angels that he's been smashing to find. Uh, to find this device, um, you know, it was an image that I had forgotten about because I hadn't seen the movie in a number of years, you know, a couple of years, not that long, but a couple of years. And it's definitely a really cool, um, really cool image in the movie. Um, and But also, too, like going back to like the monsters, I think about the actual creature that's in the Kronos device, like that's mm. also not an evil creature it's just it's trapped no. in this thing and forced to <laughs> do what it has to it, do it's stuck in an egg like some some like alchemist from way back when decided i'm gonna take this bug and put it in this device yeah and instead of instead of going maybe i should leave it under the log mm-hmm. like there's all these things and i think i i, I think it alludes back to something Guillermo del toro said recently that i I find fascinating, honestly, because um, he did an interview with Mike Flanagan, which I shared to Joey immediately. Um, and he's talking about how he loves the aesthetics of horror, but not the mechanics of horror. And I get that wholeheartedly, honestly. Like, the idea of, like, horror being, like, like you see, like... I think that's also a perfect uh, explanation of why he views, like, the Universal Monster characters the way he does. Like, you look at a lot of them, say, for, like, Dracula. Dracula's probably... Dracula and maybe the Invisible Man are probably the only ones with, like, malicious intent. But then, when you look at Frankenstein, like... uh, Frankenstein's monster did not want to exist. He was dead. Mm -hmm. He was free. He was forced to come back to life... Not and not how he used to be, in a completely different body. 
um, one that is lanky and um, misshapen, and so that's a very tragic character. Right. And now that he's alive, he's like, "All right, well, I wanna, I wanna live properly. Then I want a mate. I wanna, I want someone to love." And and then like, there's the Wolfman. The Wolfman is turning into a wolf and and killing people, and he does not want to do that at all. Like these are tragic figures that are put in these unfortunate situations. I mean, it's it's kind of a beautiful thing to think that Guillermo del Toro was watching uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon and thought, "What if the woman and the creature were in love?" Yeah, like, <clears throat> and and I also think about like, and I know we've already talked about Shape of Water, but like I think about too, because um, when we were talking about Ever Scissorhands, and you brought up like the the fault in the Beauty and the Beast story, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking maybe Guillermo del Toro fixed that because the monster didn't turn into a prince. No, I was actually watching um, a video essay by uh, this channel. Qual- I think it's Quality Culture, and they did they, mm-hmm. like I think they brought up a Guillermo del Toro quote where where like love is not <clears throat> transformational, love is acceptance. Um, exactly um so like he that, that was and he talks about that on like the one of the pan's labyrinth interviews that he hates beauty of the beast how like every version you know he transforms into a handsome <laughs> prince and it's like come on <laughs> it just makes so much sense like like you, you like and that's just the nature of Guillermo del Toro he talks about anything and you're like why haven't I thought of that right it rings so true um <clears throat> But, uh, but yeah, like, when I watch Kronos or any of these movies, like, you know, you just, you're feeling so much for these, for these creatures and what they're going through. Mm-hmm. So, like, like, Ron, so, like, obviously Ron Perlman, for example, like, he's, he's got his own shit to deal with, but he's, like, like, you were saying, like, yeah, like, he's such a despicable person. And then this other guy... He keeps beating the shit out of Ron Perlman because he's like, I, I want to live forever. Mm-hmm. What the hell? Mm-hmm. I hate you. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but if he did do it like that, I hate you. Yeah. I want to live forever. Mm-hmm. And then here's poor Federico Lupi who uses the device. Now he's a vampire. He gets killed at one point, by the way. We're kind of like all over the map a little bit, but... Um, he does get killed at one point, and then he yep. comes back to life because you know he's a vampire. And then uh, now he's like, "Well, shit! Now I'm stuck." He's like the bug. Yeah, he is now the bug, and he's like, "I I can't die, so what am I gonna do?" Yeah, I don't know. And it's just you it. It's it's crazy to think that all of this goes on in Guillermo del Toro's first movie. Yeah, like yeah. like it just it just shows just how great of a filmmaker he would become if that was his first movie. Yes, it's insane. I agree, and I also <laughs> want to mention uh, Tamara Shaneth as uh, Aurora, the granddaughter. I mean, because there's also, I mean, each of these movies has, like, a, a, a child protagonist. Um, and it should be noted that all the all the young girls seem to be named after Disney princesses. <laughs> so, Aurora, and then in Pan's Labyrinth, her real name is Princess Moana. <laughs> <laughs> 
I am Ivana. <laughs> Ivana Baccarat, the first Moana. Okay, now I'm just trying to imagine how much how much CGI you would need to get the Rock to look like the Pale Man. <laughs> I, I'm so glad you went with the Pale Man too. <laughs> no, because like the the fawn, I'm like, okay, all right, but the Pale Man would be so ridiculous. It would be so silly. <laughs> But, like, when he does the, the hand thing, it's just got an eyebrow that's raised on one hand. No, I'm just imagining the rock's <laughs> face, like, poorly placed on each hand. And he's just, like, the smile. <laughs> um, but, I mean, you know, I was also thinking about, too, the, the, at one point, Aurora wears, like, blue and red, and it made me think of Superman. You know? So, now we're saying Christopher Reeve <laughs> could have been this little girl. <laughs> but also too it's 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 a story also story just about like about loss you know because you know obviously at some point you lose your you lose your grandparents and you know she was very close with her um with jesus uh federico lupe's character she's close to the grandfather um so it's trying mm -hmm. to like you're trying to like make do and trying to do the best of like trying to have that goodbye that separation um you know but I mean, it, it's it's a great it's a great little movie. I mean, it's a, it's a great debut feature for you know one of our favorite filmmakers. Richard is uh, caressing his Blu-ray copy with uh, the, the cover art by uh, is it Mike Bignola who does the uh, he did the art for that one? I think so. I know. Yeah. I, th I think for it each, looks like Mike it, for each one, even though they look fairly, I don't want to say they look at like the same, but they have like a sim like consistent like look. In each one of those covers, but yeah, there's like a there's like a theme, like that courses through each. Um, anything else you wanted to say about Kronos? Uh, it's a great movie, and everyone should watch it. Um, it's got a lot of great actors, and it's and it's a really good sort of starting off point. Like very rarely would I I feel like I would ever mention like if you want to get a great like start with any director start with their first movie because sometimes it's like it's this maybe one movie later on that you want to be like this is the movie you want to watch first and then kind of like go whichever direction you want but i would honestly be like with guillermo start with that first one because i think he he lays it down pretty thick like what he what kind of director he would be later in his life mm -hmm. uh after chronos and he had a bit he had some rocky situations like he tried his first english language film his first fully english language film mimic after the fact and it didn't work out so much there was a lot of studio interference with that first one but then he got a uh, great success but then he would go back to devil's backbone and that would uh sort of cement more what kind of filmmaker he is then he would do blade 2 and then so on so forth the rest is history and now we're here. But, but start wanna, with Kronos, I think. I want to make a note about Mimic, though. He did meet one of his most frequent collaborators through Mimic. Mm -hmm. This you is know? very true. So uh, we'll mention that when we get to the, the third film. But And anyway, we're going to take a brief, um, brief intermission. When we return, uh, we are going to talk about uh, <laughs> the second film in this trilogy. Stay tuned.
Welcome back. Bienvenidos, everyone, to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. In our last segment, uh, we talked about Guillermo del Toro's first feature ever, Kronos. And now we are talking about uh, his second film amongst this trilogy of films that we're talking about. Joey, what is the second movie we are talking about today? We are talking about his uh, his film from, what was it, 2001? This came out in, I'm pretty sure, 2001. Yes. We're talking about, it also has the great criterion spine number 666, the devil's the devil's backbone. I, I don't know. <laughs> Spanish Civil War. This this is a continuing thread <laughs> through two of two of these films. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is um, Kronos was his first film, and you would think, oh, is this his second? No, this is not his second film. No, this is not. This is like his fourth. Yeah, because because uh, weren't you saying that he did Blade or his third? Because it was either yeah, like so Blade because Blade was a, was yeah. after this. I think Blade was after this, so I think it went. I think it's his third. So when um, Chronos mimic Devil's Backbone. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he did mimic, which um, is that and Blade Two are the ones that I've watched the least. I've seen them like once each, you know. And Del Toro mm-hmm. did I, not have a good time. I've seen bits and pieces. I've seen bits and pieces of Mimic. I haven't watched it in its full mm-hmm. yet. Blade Two, obviously, I, I I said I watched it, but uh, uh, yeah, those 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 are the ones that I mean. I think especially with Mimic, that that one was just sort of a, a bad experience. But I think he had a bit more, a bit more leeway with Blade Two, but not so much. Um, but at least at this point he was, he was establishing like, okay, this is what you get from me if I get to like do what I want. And it also helped that when he did Hellboy, that sort of went in line with his own aesthetics anyway. Yeah. So even if there was interference, it's like, well, it still fits. I I almost think about it like James Gunn with like the Guardians of the Galaxy and, and, uh, Suicide Squad where it's just like, yeah, they're major studio thing affairs but they're very much they feel like very much like james gunn movies exactly but we're not talking about hellboy or mimic or blade 2 right now or the guardians of the galaxy or the suicide squad (laughs) or uh what james gunn's going to do with the future of dc (laughs) we are uh talking about the devil's backbone (laughs) finally um i freaking love this movie um i forgot how much i love this like it's it had been a, a second since i last watched it um, but I remember like being really excited. This was coming to Blu-ray cause I had never seen it before. And, um, I was like, Ooh, this, this, this is gonna be, this is really cool. And the cover is awesome. Like one of my favorite criterion, uh, covers of all time. Can you hear me caressing this cover? <laughs> I, I, maybe they can, but I don't know if I can, but anyway, um, so the devil's backbone this this is like the the Kronos was at least at for then like felt like a more contemporary piece, you know because you had car you, you had like yes it, it was it felt more like the modern time like this is uh this is during if I'm not mistaken during the Spanish Civil War, um you know where eventually yes. we would get you know Franco's Spain which would last several decades, um and it's a period of history that I especially like. In America, in like, in like public schools, we don't really. It's almost more like a footnote, honestly, 
yeah we don't we don't we don't cover it a lot because like admittedly like when it comes to anything in in history class it seems like it's you know the the big wars and then like anything that's happened with us specifically being involved yeah and yeah like the spanish civil war is like it's mentioned i do remember this being mentioned when i was in school but i don't remember it ever like being expanded upon no because when you talk about like fascism in like public school at least american public schools i feel like it's it's much more about the nazis of course and the holocaust nazis which makes sense you know um, mussolini's yeah. italy that kind of thing like it makes it which makes sense because you know the holocaust is such a devastating event but also too like this is a pretty you know i mean if the fact of the matter is that like franco franco spain was like i think over four decades because it didn't, his reign didn't end to like the seventies, you know, um, and we'll get to that more about that in a second. But basically, um, how would you describe the place that they're at? It's sort of like a refuge of so it's like a pl- place for bullet it's school, like it's, like it's like an orphanage almost. Yeah, like you got a bunch of um, boys like, at this orphanage, right? Yeah, it's it's like an all boys like school orphanage sort of thing. Um, and our our central child, if you will, in this one, because the next two movies feature a kid. So like this first one is Carlos, mm-hmm. he's a young boy, and uh, he's he he thinks that he's just going to visit this place with his tutor because his dad is. Uh, did his dad die at this point, or did his dad like is one of the soldiers or something? I know they were I talking about that he was fighting. I'm. Pr- it would make sense if he died though. Um, yeah. 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 He has no clue that what's actually happening is that he's being dropped off there so that he can stay there because his tutors, uh, part of like the rebellion against, um, against, the, the fat, uh, Franco yeah, against the, yeah, the nationalists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, he's obviously devastated by it. And so now he's stuck there at this place. Um, the, probably the most significant feature about this place is that a bomb was dropped, but it didn't go off. It just stayed there and it was deactivated. So now it's just there in the ground and it's got some ribbons on it. So at least they decorated it a little bit, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's, it's, it's kind of a crazy thing that like, it's the first thing you see when you walk in and there's just a bomb stuck in the ground. Right. Um, and when, when Carlos gets there, like Carlos is an imaginative kid. I think that's a pretty common thing with all the kids in these movies, I think is that they all have some sort of imaginative nature about them. Like, um, like Carlos wants to write. I think, I think he's a big fan of comics and mm-hmm. writing and he's, I think in many ways, it's sort of a, a sort of a, uh, an extension of Guillermo himself. There's even like a bit where Carlos picks up a snail and is kind of fascinated by it. I feel like that's something Guillermo did on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, when he was a kid. So, like, he gets there and he meets some of the other kids. Uh, one kid specifically, Jaime, um, is kind of, kind of mean, but he's also kind of dealing with his own stuff. Um, and, uh, like, he kind of bullies Carlos a little bit, but then they sort of find some common ground. Um, and they become pretty good friends, honestly. And then, uh, there's there's this uh, story that goes around that there's uh, there's ghosts in 
this in this building in this place and periodically we'll see this ghost and this ghost is of a young boy and the young boy's name is santi mm-hmm. or so at least initially they suspect uh, but santi is a young boy that was killed and was a very close friend of uh jaime's and uh that sort of devastated him and like even the fact that um carlos sleeps in santi's bed pisses him off mm. Because he's like, no one can replace this this person that was part of our group or whatever. Yeah. There's there's a bit of that animosity, and they're seeing ghosts and stuff. Um, but obviously, like when we come to the adults' perspective, they're all dealing with everything going on with 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 the war, and they're they're taking care of all these kids whose parents are being are in the war or are killed in the war. Um, and they're just they're just trying to take care of these kids in this really rough situation. Like, and they're trying to do things for themselves. Like, um, Federico Lupi returns in this one, and he's like, I don't, what is his role? He's the, is he's he the like orphanage the, doctor. Because we also have to, I also have to mention yes. Carmen um, in this movie, who she runs, she runs the orphanage. She's played by uh, yeah. uh, Marissa Paredes, um, and she's great in the movie. Um, she, she's very like, good. She's continuing this legacy because her husband started this. Her husband was like sort of yeah. part of this resistance cause as well. She took over that cause um, once he after he passed away. Also notable, um, she has a a fake a fake leg um, in this. Um, so you know, there's there's a lot of like aspects of this story that are you know there's a lot of imagery going on, right? That like sort of like feelings of feeling incomplete. Yeah. Um, because also the other thing to note about Federico Lupe is that he's impotent. That's, that's what I was leading to. Yep, here. Sorry. I, <laughs> um, but I, you know, but like, I, I think one of the, the great, we also have to mention by the way, because as far those are like two wonderful, like caretakers, you know, they're pretty good caretakers yes. as far as you can go, but there's also Jacinto, um, Eduardo played by Eduardo Noriega. Uh, he's like sort of the care, t- sort of the caretaker, and he is a piece of shit. This guy, he's his listen. His whole deal seems to be like all he wants to do is steal the gold that is inside of this safe, and so periodically he'll try to steal the keys. Mm-hmm. And the way he steals the keys is pretty crazy. <laughs> And so, um, he's a very, like, I think this is also a common thread as well. Like these, like these are evil people, but they're also very small people. Yeah. Very selfish people. Like it's, I feel like I was going to say something and then it it just left my brain. (laughs) But, but he's, he's really like a, like a piece of shit. Um, and I think, yes, that's that's the main thing. I, I think one of the other things, <laughs> the things to note is that a lot of our adult characters, I mean, the boy, like the adult, like kids are kids, so that's whatever, but the adult characters are incredibly flawed people. Um, yeah. When you think about it, like uh, the doctor has, has feelings for Carmen, and they've implied that he's had feelings for her since before her husband passed, you know? So it's like, okay. And then she's having a thing with um, Jacinto. Um, you know, because unfortunately the doctor just can't, you know, um, but like the thing, at least the difference is like between the doc, like Carmen 
and the doctor versus Jacinto is that they don't view themselves as perfect, but they are good people. No. Whereas Jacinto is a good looking guy and he thinks of himself as like the perfect guy. You know, he doesn't, he is like cream of the crop. Yeah. Like, like top tier, like no one else is better than him. Uh, and that's, that's where I, I remember like on one of the, I was watching one of the bonus features, some of the bonus features for devil's backbone. That's where like sort of the philosophy comes in. It's like, like if you, if you think you're perfect, you're more likely to be evil, you know? Whereas if you're, if you're somebody like you're, you could be flawed, but still be an incredibly, you still be a good person. Like the, I come away from it, loving the doctor, loving Carmen. So like so much as people, you know, like they're just human. Like the stuff that they do is just like, yeah, it's, it's what it is, but it's just like, you know, they're taking care of these boys and they're, they're fighting for, you know, they're fighting for a good cause ultimately. I mean, actions speak louder than words, ultimately. Like, you know, like, I think everybody, like, they have feelings and they feel certain things they, and they do certain things. Um, but, like, it all depends on how you approach that, I feel, you know. So, like, they know, like, they know that it's probably a bit, a bit weird. Like, you know, he had these feelings for her and she had, she has these feelings for him and, you know, yet she's with Jacinto and like he he sort of like I hate it like in that scene like he rubs it in her face like you need me you need me because of my potency for of my you need me because I'm young and virile and I can give you what maybe someone else can't give you and and that's you know how he essentially is able to get the keys and try them so that he can see if he can unlock the safe and and the whole time, like, anytime, anytime someone, like, in any way tries to, like, upstage him, like, even when Jaime gives, um, what was the woman's name? Like, the girlfriend? Oh, um, uh, Conchita? Conchita. When he, when he gives her, like, the, the cigar, the cigar, like, paper as, like, a ring, like, just to say hi, and then she's clearly like, oh, that's so nice of you. Like, I, I really appreciate that. And then she puts it on, and she's like, she knows obviously it's a cigar thing, but she's still like, that's so nice. Um, and then uh, Jacinto's just like, what the fuck is this kid doing? And like, he, you know, uh, during like the sort of crazy, like climactic moment when there's explosions and people dying, um, she's walking to find help, and she runs into Jacinto and his gang, and he just kills her outright. And then goes back and goes into Jaime's face and says, oh, I think this is yours. And he hands him the cigar paper. And it's like motherfucker, mm-hmm. motherfucker! What a piece of shit! Do we shit. talk about what he did with uh, with Santi? Well, I, I figure that was the lead up. Uh, obviously, that like, like flashback at some point that you know we mentioned Santi. He's sort of like, sort of the the ghost of the of the proceedings. You know, is this child child ghost? He's he's roaming around. I think Carlos is really the only like everyone always assumes that there's ghosts in the place, um, but then there's. Uh, but then there's Carlos, who sort of like is more curious than that. So like he go he and in, he inspects things. Like he goes a little bit further, and even so far as like he goes to the place where Santi was killed. And whenever we see Santi, um, he always has this like plume of blood coming out of his for coming out of his forehead, and um, we don't really know what he wants initially, but we learn that he wants Jacinto mm-hmm. because Jacinto is the one that killed yep. him. And uh, he bashed his head on uh, this like pillar, the side, this like yeah. column or whatever, 
and threw him into the water, mm-hmm. which is why, like, whenever we see Santi, he looks wet, and, like, the blood is, like, flowing up as if he's underwater, which I thought was such, like, an interesting imagery, because I think it, it, it changes things a little bit, because it's, it's one thing if he's just, like, a, a ghost-looking a ghost looking character with, like, a wound or something, but, like, now we have these little details that sort of add to the mystery. Like, okay, so maybe he's in that big pool that we see all the time. Right. Or, you know, it's like the little details that are adding to the sort of story of where he is and how this even played out. No, yeah, for sure. Um, and I also think that that imagery is so is so memorable. And it gets, it, it, it's, you know, it sort of comes back in uh, Crimson Peak, you know. Mm-hmm. Which I was thinking about when I saw it in theaters. I'm like, oh my god! They did they did the devil's backbone thing! <laughs> <laughs> like, you just see... Uh, spoiler alert. When you see Tom Hiddleston. Because he dies in the movie. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert. Um, and uh, he gets stabbed in the face. And so, like, from his, from his cheekbone, there's, like, a little... Little, like, smoke of blood that comes out of his face. And that was so cool. No, it was. Um, that was cool. I mean, I also like again. This movie like takes place during that like Spanish Civil War period, um, and I feel like this is one of those. It actually like you were were you say, were you the one saying to me that this made you think of like Shape of Water or not this? I don't know if it was this movie or if it was. Um, I don't know. But like this movie, it makes me think of like Nightmare Alley because like other than like one sort of supernatural thing. It's a it's pretty real like the proceedings are pretty realistic. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was saying it reminded me of Shape of Water. Because me, it made me think like you know I could see why, but it also definitely made me think of Nightmare Alley because you have the jarred babies, okay, in both. Yeah, <laughs> where we get the, the devil's backbone, <laughs> yeah. um, you know. But it's also it it is just like it it like I don't. I don't want to say that, like, the ghost parts are an afterthought. They're just more just, like, there's, like, a presence. But, like, there's everything else that goes on um, in the movie as well. Like, it's the fantastical thing that elevates the themes of the movie yeah. about the past. And, like, I compared it to Shape of Water because I think Shape of Water is very much a movie about, like, like, you, like we were saying earlier, a movie, it's a movie that is explaining that love is acceptance not change and so like uh it's set in the 50s in a time period when there was so much unacceptance and not even just from a love not even just from like a romantic standpoint but from just a just you know you look different we don't accept you and like i think um when you when we when we look at the the amphibian man and the relationship um with sally hawkins like, I think that, like, obviously, I feel like that's a little bit more of a narrative focus than, say, with Santi in Devil's Backbone, but it still, like, brings home the point that it's about accepting someone for, for who they are and loving them for who they are. And with Santi in Devil's Backbone, <clears throat> it's not a primary thing, necessarily, but it is one of the most important things. Yeah. Because, and, like... And one thing I kind of like about Guillermo del Toro is that he bookends a lot of his movies with, like, narrative texts yeah. that sort of rhyme with each other. But, like, it sort of in, like initiates the point, but then it um, 
and you can you can probably think like oh this is just maybe like he's just having to explain to his audience but i think it's more of like a, just a poetic thing but also like it's like a fairy tale i mean all th- all three of these movies especially have a type of like a, i mean a, a lot of del toro's movies actually but they have some type of narration um that that yeah. goes on and it makes it like gives it that extra fairy like these three movies but especially our third movie and i would say in some ways this movie but like especially the third movie it's fa- fairy tales for adults um, which we're yes. going to get into more with, with, uh, with Pan's Labyrinth. But I, I just, I adore this movie. Like visually speaking, it is, go- it might, it's so hard to say because Pan's Labyrinth is such a beautiful movie, but this might be my favorite visually speaking. I think like the, like just the, the use of like blues and oranges and reds, um, in this one, obviously just the image of the bomb just sort of like, again, as its own sort of ghost. Uh, to the proceeding, yeah. but also Jacinto, I want to talk about him real quick again, because again, Guillermo, I say Guillermo del Toro gives like a humanizing moment to these characters in each movie, and I thought the moment where he's looking at photographs of his family was an incredibly powerful moment, and he's like yelling at the photograph, like "Stop moving your head, you idiot!" Like he's talking to himself, like the baby version of himself in a photograph. You know, he's trying mm-hmm. to see himself, and he's just like, "Stop it!" You know, um, but I thought like that was an incredible. Um, incredible bit uh in in that in that movie right. and i also again going back to the spanish like civil war i was watching there was like an interview with like a scholar he was talking about how like it's an interesting way to end it because the like by the time like franco's like spain is over these boys will be in their 50s or 60s basically um <laughs> so it's like you're going off into into the wilderness and it's like several decades later <laughs> oh it's over now Finally. Yeah. And Santi's ghost just comes up. Wow, that took a long time. Man, that really took a second. <laughs> like, oh, sorry, your ceiling's getting bloody. My Oops. Bad. It's just it comes out. <laughs> I can't help it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I, I also kind of like that, too, because it's like, it's like the youth has to, like, take the path forward. Like, you know, all the like the, the main adult cast, they, they die, basically. Like, Yeah, ev- like, all the adults are dead. You know, um... Yeah, but like, and these boys are meant to like. There's a new future. There's an untamed wilderness out there. The future is uncertain, but they have at least have some hope uh, that someday things will be better. And you know what? This the, the continuing theme of Federico Lupi playing monsters. He he becomes a he becomes a ghost. So like, he was a vampire in the first one. Now he's a ghost in the second one. Yes, and it's kind of like like you don't know it at first because obviously like. You know he's he's severely damaged, but he's still there to help the kids. But he's bleeding profusely. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. like there's there's moments where flies start hovering over him because they just kind of know. Yeah, like we kind of know that you're probably gonna die here. So and then eventually he does. But then we start hearing like one of the kids who like broke his ankle going, "Yeah, he he just came by and said we gotta go this way or something," and everyone's like, "What?" then Carlos notices uh, his handkerchief that was in his pocket that is not in his pocket anymore. And then as they're escaping after they've defeated Jacinto um, in such a brutal but, like, deserving way, <laughs> they all get pointy sticks. They poke him in the armpit. <laughs> that, that one gets me. I feel like this is uh, Guillermo del Toro's um, Lord of the Flies, basically. <laughs> it kind of is. 
Oh man. Um so they they take him down and then as they're escaping the, the like orphanage place, um uh Federico Lupi walks walks in wa- not all the way out but walks just enough that you know that his spirit's still there like like wishing for them to have have a better future than they did. Yes. I like that it ends with like saying like like I am a ghost or something or the ghost I am or something mm-hmm. whatever he ends up saying but I like that that's how it ends. Yeah, absolutely. I mean this is this is an incredible incredible movie. Like I'm glad we, um I got I got to revisit this one again cuz it Same. had been a, it had been a, a second and um uh, it's so hard like cuz I love so many of his movies but like this is like like it it, it it's it's <laughs> It's like every second you go, but this one, so good. And you're like, but this one, like I love this one, but this one, like Nightmare Alley's Jar Babies, but Devil's Backbone Jar Babies, <laughs> but Tom Hiddleston Ghost, <laughs> but Santi Ghost, <laughs> but, but like, but. But stupid Hellboy. But Bradley Cooper. But Hellboy too. But Federico Lupi. But Hellboy too. He's gonna eat the cat. <laughs> He's gonna eat it. He's gonna eat the uh, cat. But anyway. But then Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. Um, Pacific Rim. I just know is my favorite, and it's like a weird thing because like, he's made some, like beautiful movies, and I'm just like, we are canceling the apocalypse. <laughs> like, listen, I love these other movies. They they make my brain work in different ways, but this one. This is what I love. <laughs> but I think we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the one. Like, I think we could almost, you could almost definitively say is the best one. May, not just of this one, but maybe of his whole filmography. And maybe the the, the, the definitive Guillermo del Toro film. You probably already know what it is. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, even though as much as I love it, it is not Nightmare Alley. Uh, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs>
Bienvenidos again! <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to our third segment here on this very exciting triple feature we're doing here on Two Dudes, One Double Feature. We talked about Kronos, we talked about Devil's Backbone, and now the grand finale, the big one, I would argue. This is the one, I think, for me, that made me fall in love with Guillermo del Toro's filmmaker. I think this is this thing for like everybody sort of watched this and said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, he's great. Mm-hmm. Like he's the man." Um, and that film, do you mind if I introduce it? You introduce it, please. Go for it. I appreciate it. We are talking about the 2006 Guillermo del Toro classic, greatness masterpiece, even that is called Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> you didn't even hum it. Come on, <laughs> show some, show Mercedes some respect. <laughs> Are you saying that I don't respect Mercedes in this movie? How, how dare you? I've, I I just listen. You were just like you didn't even hum it. You just went do do do. Like no. Listen, man. No, I can't hum it as well as she can. So, like, that's okay. She would have been fine with that. She would have said, "You did your best job." Man, she I don't know if I can keep. Woman. I don't know if I can keep going with this. No, like, with you thinking of a Mercedes <laughs> hater, and we're not talking about the car, folks. We're talking about uh, the Maribel uh, Verdu character uh, in this movie, who was literally the best. And Richard claims that I am not. I, th- I hear my mom clapping at a game. All right. <laughs> Your mom's like clapping for me, like, yeah! Get, D- take him down doubt- a notch. Doubtful. Doubtful. <laughs> but, um, so I'm going to say something about Pan's Labyrinth. And this makes me think of. Um, I'm thinking about the Musical Splendid podcast, and they talked about The King and I. Have you ever seen The King and I or Sound of Music? I've heard of the title. I've, I've seen Sound of Music, but it was a long time ago. So they, they sort of described, like, The King and I as basically a dry run for Sound of Music. Because there's a lot of things that they share. And uh, you can kind of say the same thing about Devil's Backbone being the dry run for Pan's Labyrinth. Because there's so much... There's so much that these two um, they, these two have in common. I mean, they, all three of them do, yeah. but, like, especially these last two... Uh, they feel like each other. Guillermo even said before that like Pan's Labyrinth feels like a spiritual like sequel, like a successor to Devil's Backbone. I mean, again, like as far as similarities concerned, it's this. Now the difference being that um, Backbone was during the Spanish Civil War. This is after the Spanish Civil War, and yet there's still rebels, um, guerrilla soldiers in the woods. And uh, we have Captain Vidal, piece of shit, um, running this, like, compound, if you will. And uh, they're basically, like, planning, okay, this is how we're going to destroy the rebels, and we also have to plan out how we're going to control the country now, mm-hmm. or at least this area. But then, of course, this one really sort of, uh, like, this one's definitely more fairy tale focused whereas the last one had, like, elements... Um, and the story that we're dealing with, with Pan's Labyrinth and the fairy tale side of things is that there's this kingdom, like the underworld. I think it's just, I think it's just called the underworld, Mm. but not like, we're not talking like Greek mythology or anything. It's just this beautiful place that happens to exist, like under the world. Right. (laughs) The princess, Princess Moana, not, uh... Not Moana, not but, you know, Moana. uh Carvalho. 
but Moana. Mm-hmm. And um, she's trying to es- she try she escapes the underworld, but once she sees the light of the sun, um, she completely forgets everything. Mm-hmm. And so the king um, opened portals throughout the world with the possibility that they'll be able to find Princess Moana and hopefully bring her back to the underworld. Now, as far as we're as we know, there is no cement understanding that this is in fact true that should be noted and i think that's an important thing because like there's so many instances where like um ophelia who's the main girl character in the film played by ivana baccaro um she uh sees things and experiences things that obviously all the adults don't mm-hmm. like literally there's a point where she's talking to the fawn like the central like mythical creature in this film and captain vidal catches her talking to him and he doesn't see him at all right so she's like existing in her own head from that perspective almost so there's kind of like a questionable aspect of like is what she is what she's doing actually true or is it not but then again i guess the question is does it matter ultimately so but that's sort of the fairy tale aspect of this so ophelia along with her mom who's pregnant with Captain Vidal's child, uh, are being taken to the compound where he is. Even though she's at a late stage of pregnancy, she shouldn't be traveling. I mean, they tell they tell pregnant they tell pregnant women like, "Hey, you're you're like in your like eight, eighth month of pregnancy. Last thing you need to be doing is going to like you know, you know, the Caribbean or something." <laughs> and yet Vidal's like, "Listen, my kid's being born where I am. Deal with it," because he's a dickhead. Um, and obviously, the complications of that come into play pretty quickly. Yeah, but um, so they so they travel, and when we first meet Ophelia, she's very much a reader. She loves fairy tales. She loves lullabies and stories and stuff. It's very much like the equivalent of modern day people like Joey and I that obsess over movies and you know talk about like because you know they didn't have movies back in the day necessarily or like. You know, like, the entertainment was what it was. Books were the one thing you could probably take with you from place to place. Uh, Exactly. And so, like, she had her whole, like, stack of books with the belt wrapped around it that she could carry around with her and read whenever she wants. Um, And uh, they they get to this place, and it's it's clear it's clear uh the situation they're dealing with when they especially when you meet fadal like the first thing like he's sort of like like he he shows maybe a little bit affection towards the mom but isn't like immediate like the only thing he cares about is the baby in her stomach yep that's it i don't think he even kisses her at any point at least like there's no romance whatsoever there. No, yeah, it's um whatever whatever he ca- he feels for her is more about like a concern for his at this point unborn child or his I mean it's his son. Like he's adamant that it's his son. Yes, right. Because it has to be it has to be a man. Um which is I think a important aspect of the story as well. Um and then Oph- then he meets Ophelia and she she's listening to her mom because her mom's like a you know say hi you know be be polite and she sticks her hand out to shake his hand and he just grabs it and says that's the wrong hand and then throws her hand down yeah motherfucker <laughs> like i was like when we were watching devil's backbone i was like joey who do you think is worse uh jacinto or uh vidal and it's like it's so hard <laughs> well, i think the way i described it is like okay so like vidal is almost like darth vader 
where it's like, yes, yeah. you see the evil that he he's putting out, but like, like you look at Jacinto, and it's like it's almost like a smaller like when you think about I almost think about the characters like in Andor, and it's like the evil there. You're just like, ooh, <laughs> like Jacinto is the one dude who's like in love with the the blonde. <laughs> <laughs> oh Andor. my god. <laughs> Um, no, but, like, but, but they're, they're both pretty terrible. I mean, Vidal is awful. Like, I think about the scene where he smashes the dude's face in and then kills his father right afterwards. Like, like, and, and the thing he's mad about is that the guys didn't check his bag. Like, you guys are bothering me because you found hunters. Great. Like, seriously, guy? Yeah. Like, you just smashed this guy's face in just because he's trying to defend his father because they're trying to say, hey, don't kill us. We're not uh part of any rebellion we're just hunting for food because my kid's sick right <laughs> and, and he takes a bottle that was in the bag and just beats him in the face with it until he's dead yeah and then he shoots and kills the father and then he finds the the, the rabbit carcasses from when they were hunting and he's like his first reaction is check the bag more and then walks away fuck you dude yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> jesus like, like he goes to the extreme for like everything. Yes, if, it doesn't. If no one listens to him, if he doesn't get his way, he's gonna kill you. Yeah, but yeah, there was there was that whole discussion of um, who's worse, and like I definitely I definitely agree with you though. It's like it's like the Darth Vader versus like you know uh, like a character on Andor sort of thing. But like at the same time, it's like you just you hate yes both so yeah. much. Oh. Like, like the captain might be just one of the, the most despicable villains um, ever. Ever. Yeah, but yeah. Guillermo del Toro also still pulls off that trick of, like, making him feel like a real person. Like, with his dad. With his dad. Like, the dad stuff. Yeah, with the watch. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought, wow, that was that was incredible. And you're still just like, this still, still, still like the big bad wolf. Like, <laughs> fuck you, guy. <laughs> you're just want, you just want, like, the, the, ax, the axeman or the huntsman to, like, kill this dude. You know, you want him to be got... <laughs> Uh, I love, I love at the end too when like he when he walks out of the labyrinth and the rebels are just surrounding it, and he hands Mercedes the kid and he's like, "Do me a favor, tell the kid uh, when when his father died, tell him." And then she's like, "No, she's not even gonna know. He, he's not even gonna know your name." And then he gets shot in the face. Yeah. And you're like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah." I think like, it's gonna connect. I think the overall theme of this movie is is like the importance of disobedience. Um, yes, you know overall because it, it's all over the place. Now, obviously, there's rebels, but they also have rebels working underneath the nose of the captain. Okay, because you have uh, Mercedes played by Mer- Mercedes. Um, you know who's sort of like she's sort of like the uh, the head like lady of the like as far as like you know yeah. getting the chores done and all all that stuff. But her brother is uh, one of the prime members of the rebellion that's in the woods. Yes, and we also have, and so yeah. Oh no, no, no we also know. have the doctor. The yes. doctor in this movie. Um, let me just give me a second. Sorry, was, my mouse is acting up. Uh, Stop acting up, mouse! God, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I love the I love the the the, the dramatic pause. God. Damn it, <laughs> Alex uh, Angulo as uh, Doctor Ferrero, who is like, like he does the ultimate act of defiance because they they capture one of the members of the resistance, um, and he's like they tell him, oh yeah, you you should like 
you know, make this guy like give up stuff or whatever. Like I forget the exact like the exact context. And he instead he instead like is an act of mercy and kills him basically. Yeah. And he's like, why did the doc the captain's like, why didn't you obey me? He's like, obedience for the for the sake the sake of obedience is something that only men like you do. And yeah, uh, you know, the doctor obviously gets killed at that point, and you know, yeah. But uh, such a wonderful, um, a wonderful act of defiance there. But also to let's get back to Ophelia a bit. So she meets the fawn. Now the fawn, the fawn who's played by uh, uh, Doug Jones, who another uh, two dudes who Del Toro met while when he was doing pickups for Mimic. Uh, they needed an American actor to fit into the mimic creature, and they couldn't get the Canadian actor because it would have been uh, prohibitively expensive uh, to do that. So they got, hey, can you come in? He's like, yeah. So Del Toro kept that dude in the back of his head and obviously used him for the Hellboy movies, for Abe Sapien. Used him for the Amphibian Man. Um, pretty much, like, anytime you see a creature that's a prosthetic, that's not a puppet, in a Del Toro movie, chances are he's like I think Doug Jones plays all the ghosts in Crimson Peak. That uh, I mean, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, so the fawn and the fawn is like, you know, oh, are you the princess or whatever? And it's like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but I he, love that. But thing. he's so confused. Like, for, oh, but you're the princess. What? Well, like, remember, he's listen. What? The fawn at this point, like the fawn, reverse ages in this movie too. So like he starts out mm-hmm. really old. His he's not looking in the best of shape. His he's basically he looks like he's blind. His teeth, his teeth are gross, his and it's like one of his horns is like not as good. Yeah. So like this guy is like, okay, you got to prove yourself. You got to do these tasks, and uh, there's all sorts of things like. Is the first the first one's the toad, right? Yeah. So like the first, so basically, Ophelia's got to do these tasks so that she can re-enter the underworld, base, um, and be be part of her family once again as Princess Moana. <laughs> um. So the first task is she has to go. Basically, um, the fawn hands her this book, and the book, um, when she reads it alone, uh, gives her. Uh, the task that she has to do. Right. So, like, the first task she has to do is she has to go to this tree and uh, find this toad that sort of rotted the tree from within. And uh, she uh, has to get make him eat these rocks, these stones. And once that happens, then uh, she'll be able to retrieve the f- this the first item on this and uh, in this whole adventure she's going on. And the first item is a key. Mm-hmm. And so she does that. Um, uh, she does get a little dirty, a little muddy, um, uh, much to the detriment of her mother, who just made this beautiful dress for her. And um, I, I admit, like, like, like uh, the, the the anxiety of like childhood was instilled in me in that moment when the dress was found, and it was like, he's like, like you don't want to disappoint your parents, but like, <laughs> so like, oh god, they're gonna they're gonna yell at me. Yeah. So like, I kept thinking, oh no, that dress. Yep. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so then the second task, um, is that she has to go and, uh, retrieve the second item from this other place. So she's given a piece of chalk to draw a door, very similar to Beetlejuice, because I kept thinking of Beetlejuice. I'm like, oh, that's what they did in that movie. Mm. Um, so she goes to this place and it's this almost, this really scary, but like elegant and beautiful place. It almost looks like something you would see in like Bram Stoker's Dracula 
Um, and there's this huge table and there's this feast of like all these delicious looking foods. And at the, at the head of the table is the pale man. Um, another very iconic creature from this film. Um, uh, they, like, I, I remember when, um, Kate Blanchett did hot ones recently and like, there's a bit where she's like, you can't touch your eyes, but she's trying to wipe her eyes and she does it like with her hands out mm. and it looks like she's doing the pale man thing. Yeah. And so on Twitter, like I kept seeing like Kate Blanchett as the pale man. And I thought that was fun. Right. Plus Kate Blanchett seems to be like a returnee for Del Toro since she did Nightmare Alley. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Great. A great, uh, a great addition to his, re- uh, recurring cast. But, um, so, uh, the one rule in this whole job, don't eat or drink anything on the table. Mm-hmm. Don't. Um, the Fonz like, don't do it. Uh, but of course, Ophelia's like, mm, I like grapes. Those grapes look really good. and They're huge. Maybe if I just had one. And then the fairies that are helping her in this task are like, no! No! Don't do it! Stop it! What are you doing? And then she's just like, get away. Shoo. And she eats the grape. And then you just see the hands of the pale man like, Kim! Kim! <laughs> I love the music at that point. It's just like, Choo! Yeah. And then you just hear, <gasps> and there's like a little plate in front of him that's got eyeballs on it. And he sticks the eyeballs in his palms. And that's when he can see again. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of a scary image, too. Just like the hands, like, splayed out with the and the hands just on the forehead with the eyeballs on them like that's a terrifying image um i also want to say too like just the pale i mean the pale man is just scary but i think the pale man and the fawn are great examples of like practical effects with digital effects because yes they they because obviously like doug jones is is a, a tall thin guy but he is not that thin so they have to green screen part of his leg on the pale man to so that way it looks like he's just like dangling like things for legs. <laughs> like he's just skeleton like he's just like one bone from his legs um, is left or like the same thing with with like the fawn you know like obviously because the way the fawns like it's like a z weird shape yeah it's like it's it's like a bug like sort of thing like a mantis yeah like or like a crane or a bird or something but i also think about too the pile of shoes in the pale man's lair um because he eats kids he eats, he eats kids and you see like the the the, the paintings of all those, on the ceiling, uh, yeah. Various um, various events, and that that's obviously a turning point too, because the fawn's just so mad. He's like, "What? <laughs> like, why did you do that? Two of my fairies got eaten. What the hell, man? Oh man!" So then the third task comes around. Now this one, this one, I think is sort of the defining, especially with the disobedience thing. Like this is the defining act. So the fawn says, "I'm going to give you a second chance." I want you to bring your brother. I want you to bring him to the labyrinth. And she's like, okay. And the second item, by the way, that she found from the pale man was a dagger. This really beautiful, like, shiny metallic dagger. Um, and he said, all right, so in order for the portal to open on the full moon, um, we need to two drops of blood from an innocent soul. And so the Fod's basically saying, give me your brother, your baby brother, so that I can... I can have him draw blood and we can go back home. And she's like, I'm not, no, I'm not giving you my brother. He's like, but we need him. She's like, no, 
begging my brother. Are you kidding me? Like, no, that's not happening. And and he's like, we need to do this now. And so it becomes like a thing. And she's like, I'm not doing it. It's like, so you're telling me that you're refusing to sacrifice your brother to get home. She's like, yes. Yeah. She's like, you're willing to give up your you, uh, being the princess for your brother. She's like, yes. You barely know he's this like, brat. You barely know. He does say that. He's like, you barely know this brat. And she's like, yes, of course I'm going to. And he's like, okay. And then he backs out and then Vidal shows up behind her and steals the kid and shoots her. That feel like anytime, like, cause like, I feel like Jacinto and Vidal like hurt kids and that's when it's like the worst. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, um, he, uh, Vidal shoots Ophelia at the end of the movie and thankfully like it was her blood cause she's an innocent, her blood that drops in. And so then we see her like she's re-entered the underworld into the kingdom. Her mom is there as the queen. Uh, Loopy, the great himself, King Loopy now. Uh, Ray, is Ray Loopy. <laughs> he is now here and he's beautiful and he's regal and his eyes are pitch black. And he's like, welcome, welcome home. And the font's there. He's fully like back to his old self. The fairies are the there. The fairies are all alive again. Yeah. It's beautiful. But but again, we cut back to Ophelia basically dying. So it's like this question of is it did it happen? Is it real? Is it real? And I and Del, I love Del Toro's answer. He's just like how you interpret that tells tells more about you than it does about me. <laughs> <laughs> Great. That's a beautiful answer. Um, okay, on that on that note then, how how do you interpret it? Do to, I I I think she she is in heaven, um, you know, I I think because you know she has a sense of hope and optimism, so this is why she is able to see all these things, whereas everybody else as grown ups are like this is stupid. They can so they can never see it. Like they're constantly saying magic isn't real. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, again, you know, no judgments. However, you interpret n interpret it. But I, I I like to be the more optimistic outlook, um, and that like, you know, yes, I, I think that she's dead, but that she is reborn again in in this afterlife. And you know, it's uh, it's also yeah. very like Christian. Like you know, you did you did the good deed. <laughs> you, you lived as a good person, and you are uh, you are rewarded. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely, if, if you talk to me, you probably will know that I'm, when it comes to religion, I, I'm very much a realist, mm. but, <laughs> um, in this instance, I'm like, I love the, like, I, 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 it, it's hard for me to imagine, like, when I first watched this movie, it was hard for me to imagine that none of that was real, mm -hmm. because it was like, you know, everything seemed so real and tangible. And I think it did help from like the, the technical standpoint that all these things happen. But then of course there's the bit when Fidal doesn't see the fawn. There's the bit when, um, uh, you know, it cuts back and Ophelia is dead and Mercedes like is crying over her dead body. Um, cause Mercedes couldn't save her. And that's an incredibly tragic thing. But at the same time, like, it's like, how can you not think it's real? I think it's like, real I, like, for Ophelia. Cause I definitely, exactly. at the like, at bare minimum, Ophelia, this is what Ophelia is like seeing at the end, you know? So it's, um, 
Uh, <laughs> it's also one of those things I think about Life of Pi in this instance as well. Um, not to get into too much with that, but it's all, but it's like, okay, which, what do you prefer, you know, and which one are you going to come away from as you, and it's I'm like, who wants, who wants to come away with the sad ending? Like, I'm like, okay, it's still like, you know, like she is dead, but there is a presence of her in this world still, as we see with the, with the flower. She's, she's Moana again. Yes. So she's back, she's back in the kingdom of the underworld with her family and with the fawn and, and I think. It's just it's such a it's such a beautiful thing like that it's it's hard to to see uh see like the the sort of more tragic side but you can still see it cuz it's there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think I think one imagery that sort of can shift that a little bit is the fact that the fairies are alive mm-hmm. cuz there was like three fairies, two of them were eaten by the pale man and yet when we come back they're back. But also also Doug Jones plays both <laughs> the pale man and the fawn. So it could have been a, just an elaborate ruse and it could have been a fake. Like, and if he could, he would have played the toad, but like, they're all like versions <laughs> of the fawn that are like creating these challenges. So like, yeah, you know, so like, I, I'm sure he has at least enough magical power to be like, make the child think, Oh shit. He ate the fairy. Oh fuck. Like, Oh my God. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> he's a, he's a skinny, saggy man with eyeballs in his hands. Ah! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But yeah, like I, it's hard for me not to watch it and be like, none of that happened um, for sure. Um, but but ultimately, I think regardless, I, I come away just the power of storytelling from from this. Oh yeah, this movie. Um, just it, it really is a fairy tale. For grownups, um, mm-hmm. and like going back to like the like the Edward Scissorhands comparison a little bit, like that feels more like a traditional fairy tale in in a way. Yes, and like this is a fa- this is a fairy tale that's say- that's like all the adults are saying like magic is not real. It's not real, and like because obviously they're all dealing with their own stuff, and I mean like. We got the, the, the constant looming villainous presence of Vidal like hovering over everybody. Um, uh, Ophelia's mom is sick like because again she traveled when she shouldn't have and she unfortunately dies giving birth to Vidal's kid and um, uh, then there's the, the constant threat of uh, Mercedes being you know secretly working with her with her brother and the rebels against Vidal and everybody at this compound um a lot of people die in this movie a lot of people die in this movie like real life is on display in full force Mm -hmm. in this film and it's constantly juxtaposed with everything in the fantasy world which is also very harrowing and I think it, it, it again works as a, an incredible metaphor for everything like that's going on in the in the quote unquote real world stuff, and just this whole idea of like, you know, like disobedience, but also um, like the parallels between the adventures that Ophelia is going on and and what's happening in this real situation. So, like, yeah, like, the power of storytelling, escapism, like, you know, 
but also like the power of stories being metaphors for something greater mm-hmm. um, than than just like go get a key, a knife, and a baby, and you can be a princess again. A key, a knife. <laughs> that, that's like a sequel to Three Men and a Baby. A key, a knife, and a baby. <laughs> a key, a knife, baby. That's uh, um, that's like uh, if I need to leave the house, I gotta make sure I have my key, my knife, and my baby. <laughs> yeah. Oh snap! I forgot the baby. Shit! <laughs> Wait, do I have the knife? Oh, the baby's got the knife. It's okay. Okay, the, the baby <laughs> has the knife and the key. Got to raise. Res- We're good. Got to raise responsible children, guys. <laughs> like, I need. You- Listen, I know you're only three months old, but I need you to watch this knife and this key for me. I greatly appreciate it. <sighs> But um, oh, also, this was a, yeah. a pretty successful movie when it came out. Too, um, mm-hmm. it was it cost nineteen million dollars to make, which compared to um, I think the budget for Kronos was like two million. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> this this movie uh, it made like eighty three million worldwide, which is a solid uh, solid take in for this kind of movie, honestly. And mm-hmm. it got it picked up a number of Oscar nominations, and it picked up I think three. Including um, cinematography, which Guillermo Navarro, we haven't really talked too much about him. This uh, Guillermo Navarro um, does cinematography for all three movies, and all three of these movies look absolutely gorgeous. It's insane how good they look. Yeah, honestly, like this most recent one, like I think, I think it also shows like a natural progression of of him of Guillermo del Toro as a filmmaker, like because like he starts off strong out the gate, but then like there's still stuff that he like has to improve on stuff that he wants to improve on for himself. Mm-hmm. So you see the, you see like in this movie, then devil and then you'll go back to devil's backbone and then go to Kronos. Like you can see that progression of him as a filmmaker. And, and you know what I kept thinking when I was watching pan, mm. I want to see these actors work with Guillermo del Toro again. It's like, yeah, I'm so happy that he's, that he's so successful that he's worked with some, really high profile actors and he's made some incredible movies with these actors and he has like a like a core group of people that he loves to work with and like like any filmmaker you know you know people make fun of some of them for like constantly reusing certain actors and i get it but like you know when you find that like core group of people that you love to work with that love to work with you and um like that's a that's a kind of special thing especially in the world of filmmaking oh yeah i would i would love to see like like uh, Ivana Backro come back, uh, work with Del Toro again because she's got her own acting career going on. She's been on like some shows, and I'd love to see like some of these other actors. Ma- Maribel, like, it would be really cool. Maribel Verdu, who I also have you ever seen uh, Itumama Tambien? Not yet, but I, I know I should. I mean, Alfonso Cuaron is a produ- is producer on on Pan's Labyrinth, and he directed uh, Itumama Tambien, and it has it's uh, it's, Ga- like, Gail, it's like um, it's like sorry. Gail Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna are both in that with Maribel Verdu. Fantastic, uh, fantastic movie. And like, I, I love the fact that um, Guillermo del Toro, um, Alfonso Cuaron, and uh, Alejandro Inarritu are like best friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and like, like, I almost feel like you could also do like um, a triple feature with like uh, just those directors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like talking about three three of their films and like how they sort of sync up a little bit mm. and what the what the messaging is and stuff like th- those are those three are just great. Yes. Though I know um I know one of them made a movie uh, that Joey uh, is 
Uh, doesn't uh, is uh, <laughs> I, I <laughs> admire. Listen, it's, it's the revenant. I admire the technical craft <laughs> of it, but it might have been one of the top five most miserable experiences I've ever had seeing a movie. But that's fair. That, that's but, fair. but again, he deserved. Was he? I think didn't he get direct? Did he get director for that one, or was it somebody else? Um, I might have got director, but of course that was the movie. Uh, Leo won that, his Oscar. You know that that, that's that, the, ga- that Leo got his Oscar. Uh, it's for. like. You know, I get, you know, yeah. <laughs> I like Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy was goofy in that movie. <laughs> See, <laughs> the only reason I mentioned it is because I know, like, in the past, we've been like, I would joke with Joey, like, oh, look, it's The Revenant, your favorite movie. And he'd be like, dude, that we almost, I know we always say, like, joke with Jokerhood, but, like, Revenant Hood, I almost feel like would be, <laughs> would almost be more appropriate. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that experience? Like <laughs> just we go from this really long, boring movie about a boy and his hood. <laughs> we go from a lo- really long, like sad movie about Leo like not dying. E- eating raw fish <laughs> so we can get an Oscar. Basically. <laughs> Fighting a bear so he could get an Oscar. Yeah. And Joey's like, Go bear! Go No. <laughs> Listen, I think I think Leo has done some terrific like terrific work though. It's just like you don't win for your best performance. You win because the Academy's like, oh wait a minute, we forgot to give you an Oscar at some point. My bad. <laughs> My bad. Whoops. Sorry guys. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like it's a special moment for him. Good for him. I'm just not a fan of the Revenant. No, <laughs> I'm just not a fan. Like, it's all maybe good. I need to see it again, but also part of me is like that again. Maybe not. Um, <laughs> like I could probably just pass on it. It's fine. But anyway, back to back to Pan's Labyrinth. Um, <laughs> uh, Pan, Pan's Labyrinth is is an incredible movie, and you know I know you said it like is. I know you said like you know Chronos should be the first one you check out if you're trying to check out Del Toro. But I would also say I do like, still think so. In, I think that's fair, but I also think. This is the definitive one of his whole yeah. honestly. Um, when you look at everything else, it's like, it just makes sense. Like, almost all of his other ones, like, they play out like fairy tales. Um, they have a, they have a love, love for the, deep love. Del Toro loves his monsters. Like, you know, oh, yeah. I, I think about, like, how much the attitudes have changed. Because I think about the original King Kong. And, like, it's a great movie, but, like, I think about Marion C. Cooper, and he was like, you know, we made the son of a bitch, it's our job to kill him. Because, like, if you watch King Kong, the people, like, the pilot and the gunner are Cooper and Shotsack, and they want to kill the monsters. Whereas Del Toro, <gasps> Del Toro's like, my babies. My babies. My babies. <laughs> I love you. Like, he's just yeah, like, I do think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do think that's a fair point as well. Like, it is, it is really, like, in many respects, a definitive the definitive Guillermo del Toro movie. I just think that it's it's very rare, it feels like, that the first outing of a lot of filmmakers is, like, as strong as it is. That's fair. But also, if as, as del Toro-y as it is already. Because I think about Wes Anderson's first film, Bottle Rocket, which definitely has a lot of, like, you know, his quirks and idiosyncrasies and all that as a filmmaker, but I feel like it's so wildly different from everything else that he had done. Like, it is insane to think about. Or even to think, like, James Cameron's first movie was the sequel to Piranha. Yes. Like, a Joe Dante movie. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like, like a lot of filmmakers don't get the opportunity to start off as strong as they do. Um, I mean, some do. And some of them really get to, like, put their stamp on their initial work. But, like, here's Guillermo del Toro out the gate making something that is his. Yeah. Holy. And... Like obviously, there's certain things that he's working on, and he's not a com- he's not completely where he wants to be. I'm sure as a filmmaker, but he's at a really incredibly strong point um, at that first one. So that when you when you when you get up to something like Pan's Labyrinth, then you're like, there he is, mm. there he is, right there. But I, at the same time, I do I do agree that if you wanted to start with Pan's Labyrinth, like yeah. I get it. It makes sense. It's it's it really is quintessential. If you could only pick one, even though I'm a huge Pacific Rim fan, I love uh, <laughs> Nightmare Alley. <laughs> it's it, it's the inspiration for for my my fake Bradley Cooper podcast, Rad, Radley Alley. Radley, Radley Alley, um, coming coming soon. I, maybe. I mean, I mean, listen, dude. When you think about it, like again, Blade Two and Mimic. I need to rewatch them, but and I'm not as hot on the first Hellboy, but like I think about like how much I love Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth. Hell the fucking Golden Army is such a great movie. <laughs> it is so good. Pacific Rim, uh Crimson Peak, I know we both both of us love Shape of, Shape of Water is a is a beautiful, uh beautiful movie. I'm so excited for Pinocchio. You know? Uh, like like that's weird. It, you know, it was nice to say that um, with the two Pinocchio movies coming out, we had one to at least be excited for. <laughs> Ooh, holy smokey, oh, Pinocchio. <laughs> oh my god, watch Geppetto say that in the new one. You're like, thank you. <laughs> like, if, if he says that, mad respect. Mad respect to Delta for recognizing <laughs> one of the memorable things. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what I want, Richard? I want a, a obnoxious cameo scene, but instead of, like, Disney movies, it's just, a cl- like, cuckoo clocks of, like, Del Toro's other films. So, like, there's, like, a fawn <laughs> popping out. There's, like, a like a ghost, a Tom Hiddleston ghost. Uh, Hellboy holding a cat. <laughs> <laughs> and you just hear, meow, meow, <laughs> 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 That would that would be that would be like that would be the one time like a reference bomb like that would be accepted. It'd be so funny. <laughs> <laughs> the only time you're like, okay, this is this works. Um, the Disney one, that's too much. But you know what though? I mean, he's been doing a lot of great movies as you both you both and I you, you and I agree on. But I would mm-hmm. love to see him do another like Spanish language movie at some point. Um, I think that would be really. Um, that'd be really cool. Um, just to also see too, maybe like other actors, like it's great that he gets to work with like Bradley Cooper, you know, and Mike, yeah. Michael Shannon and Kate Blanchett and all these like, but it'd be really good. Co- like, cause that's what I like, like about these other, like these movies too, is that you get to see other actors that you don't normally get to see in other things also. Like yeah. I think about, um, like I think about all the actors, like especially devil's backbone, you know, um, they're all incredible in that movie, and I would love to see another yeah. movie. Like maybe like bring the scale. Like let's bring that giant ass budget, but like <laughs> let, let's let's get let, let's see some other people too. You know, 
obviously, <laughs> again, like it's so silly to make demands of Del Toro, like because it's always the classic thing. That's of, such like, a that's such a thing though, too. You know, it, it is. Yeah, it, like it's like, like that's, I, that's 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 mountains of madness now. <laughs> <laughs> Haunted mansions. <laughs> Time travel. Let's make the Hobbit movies. <laughs> Hellboy three. I don't care what anybody says. Like that's like the constant like refrain of like, <laughs> like I know Ron Perlman's basically in his seventies now, but make it anyway, Dude, it's so please. Crazy, like how like quote unquote old Ron Perlman was when he was doing those Hellboy movies in that he was in his fifties. Was in that makeup and like, <laughs> and didn't he like? I don't know how long ago like that that Make a Wish thing was, but like. Yeah, yeah, he he, full makeup for that one kid. What a what a sweetheart! Yeah, <laughs> what an absolute sweetheart. But but going like, off, yeah, no, keep sorry. No, it's just I just I'm just happy that Guillermo del Toro exists. Like, listen, I'll say this to Joey not long ago. Um, a lot of unfortunate shit has happened in the world, especially the last couple of years. Um, but the one great thing I can always fall back on, the one constantly... my my The sun is blinding me right now. Um, the, the one constantly amazing thing that I can always go back to to make me feel better, but also to make me, like... Just to make me happy that this exists is Guillermo del Toro. Or even just the fact that, like, someone like Guillermo del Toro who makes, like, genre movies, or, like, elevated genre movies, I guess you could say. And dude won an Oscar for that. See, like... Yeah. It's like... It, like, awards aren't important at all. But I always think about, like, the fact that he made a movie... Uh, he, made, he made a riff on The Creature from the Black Lagoon where the woman and the creature, like fell in love with each other and it's so beautiful and i always think about when uh he went on stage to get his best uh, uh, the best picture trophy and this was after the whole like mix up with la la land and moonlight and he looks at the card and he looks directly at the camera and he's like ah <laughs> and he does the ah thing it's like it was actually me <laughs> <laughs> no but dude like that, that's a good point because again like you know i like horror movies but i'm much more into like monster movies Right, so yes. like I like seeing the creature. Like I love the Universal monsters. Obviously, Creature Black Lagoon being one of them. And thinking about Del Toro's filmography, it's like, because I hate just jump scares, and I hate like just like like I, I there's different things, but I love monster movies, and I love like yeah. stuff like I love Crimson Peak. You know where it's like it's a more like a gothic story. You know with ghosts, gothic romance, gothic romance with ghosts. You know, um, again, Shape of Water is the creature in Black Lagoon, but, like, there's consent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, of course, the Hellboy movies. Um, so, like, just just seeing, like, I, I said this in my, my Devil's Backbone review on Letterboxd. Like, his filmography is such a blessing that it's one of those things where I'm like, I, I'm just, I just, it's one of those filmmakers I'm like, I can't wait. I don't know what he's going to do next, but I can't wait. But whatever it is, I'm down. Like, whatever it is, I I'm know so I'm going to be excited. <laughs> Like, I, I remember, I'll never forget, like, being in the theater for Nightmare Alley. There was, like, baby, like, my mom, like, my mom, my brother, and I, there was, like, three other people. We were half the audience. 
and just thinking about like, <laughs> no, but like like if there's if there's if there's five million Del Toro fans, I am one of them. If there's three hundred Del Toro fans, I am one of them. If there are two Del Toro fans, it is Richard and I. <laughs> it's literally us. Uh, like, and it goes back to what he was saying in that one interview. Just like he loves the aesthetics of horror, but not the mechanics of horror. Yeah. You know, like he uses the horror aesthetic in so many things, but he shifts the, the horror mechanics to have a different meaning to it and to give the monsters a more heartfelt presence in each of his movies. And like, yeah, any do anything that he does, I am so geared for. Like even cause he just had um that Cabinet of Curiosity show on Netflix. And he is and one thing I love about him is that not only is he a great director, but he's also very protective and very much uh a champion for other filmmakers. Mm. And so like he makes this show, Cabinet of Curiosities, and um he he finds um I want to say eight or so directors and says, okay, um, we can have like a theme. We can have some continuing thing here, but what I want you guys to do is I want you to make your stuff. I want you to do it how you want to do it. There's not going to be anyone from Netflix or anyone else that's going to come on board and say, no, you can't do this. Right. I want you to make these your work. And each one of them brought it like, yeah. like, like, you know, say what you will about like maybe the quality or the story of each story, but there's no question that Guillermo Navarro or Jennifer Kent or any of these other directors that tackled each of these episodes clearly is theirs. And I think that there's a lot of respect uh, to be had for Guillermo del Toro for, for being like, I want you to make what you want to make. And I think he does that even as a producer, like so many movies, like, you know, obviously they use his name. Uh, as like a way to sell it which they do for everything like like oh but then like there's the assumption like oh Guillermo del Toro made this he's like no I I I gave someone money so they can make something they want like uh Jay Bayona mm-hmm. when he did the orphanage like Guillermo del Toro is like I want you to do you and so he makes the orphanage and now he he's making like like he did a Lord of the Rings TV show <laughs> and he made uh that beautiful a monster calls movie which made both of us cry yes um and uh, he did. He did arguably uh, one of the better <laughs> Jurassic Park sequels. <laughs> I would say definitively one of the better Jurassic Park sequels. But it's okay. Not especially every, not everyone is especially in the yet. world. Uh, <laughs> once yeah, once you understand. Once you understand. Listen. Once you've seen. Once you've seen things. <laughs> once you once you've seen the light, like I'm currently seeing right now, with the sun fucking blinding me. Um, hopefully, you don't lose your memory like Ophelia did. Who am I? Hmm. I am Moana. Well, uh, in any case, folks, uh, what is your favorite Guillermo del Toro movie? Uh, why? Wh- uh, tell me how much you admire <laughs> Nightmare Alley as much as I do. <laughs> and if you, if you don't, I'm going to throw out your messages. And uh, yeah, I'm just not even going to read. Like, like if you if you say like uh, your favorite del Toro movie is. Pan's Labyrinth will agree it's a great movie, but Joey will throw it out because it's not. Nightmare no, 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 no. That's fine. No, it, it, that that's an actual smart person decision. That's I can respect that. But or if, if but you're if someone you're that says like, my least favorite is Nightmare Alley, I'm just gonna be like, whatever. I'm gonna throw this. <laughs> no, or like you just go. Nightmare Alley was dumb, but everything else is great. 
<laughs> Joey's like, excuse me. Excuse, Hold on now. Excuse me. It's blasphemy. No, it's okay. It's all <laughs> we, need, we need to back this up a little bit. You know what's funny? Mm. I pro- <laughs> I shouldn't call her out like this, but um, I, I was talking to Caitlin the other day. I, anytime I talk to Caitlin, she'll, she'll be like, I'm just not really into Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> and there's definitely like in my brain i'm like how dare you yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but there's so many times i'm like we can fix this <laughs> i can change her <laughs> <laughs> we can <laughs> even though love is about acceptance i'm changing no I'm this is a transformational experience <laughs> <laughs> but no no it's all good um but it's just it's just funny to like like hear to just to like correlate that. It was just funny to me. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, like I just love Guillermo del Toro. And I'm so glad we we finally talked about not one, not two, but three of his movies on they, our show. And they won't be the last. We got more we, we got more coming. We got a lot more coming. Like listen, the dude's made 11 movies. I'm pretty sure all of them are ending up on the show at some point. Yeah, I think so. I think that's fair to say. And, I mean, he's got a 12th one coming out that he co-directed, Pinocchio, and we do have plans for that, too, so so you know. All right, folks, this is going to wrap it up for this week's episode of Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Check us out uh, in two weeks. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you all for listening to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Special shout-out, as always, to John and Kenny Armstrong. Thank you guys for everything you do. We love you both so much. And, of course, stay tuned for a brand-new episode of Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Nightmare Alley's Jar Babies, but Devil's Backbone Jar Babies.